Our text for today comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commands, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then, no one dared to ask him, ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, it's good to be with you again. This week was harrowing. It was cold. I, I wanted to stay uh, in my house. I, went th I worked my way through every single log of firewood that we possessed on our, uh, at our house, but uh, we made it. It's a beautiful day. It's good to, I'm, it's, I'm happy to be with all of you today. So is anybody familiar with the movie On Golden Pond? I know that's a deep cut, right? Yeah. Uh, growing up, my mom loved On Golden Pond. She used to have a VHS of it, and she used to play it, I believe. Uh, I don't really know what that movie's about, to be honest with you. Uh, my mother played a lot of, uh, she would put on like Pride and Prejudice and things like that when I was growing up too. But uh, On Golden Pond is a movie that's starring uh, Henry Fonda, uh, Catherine Hepburn, which is uh, Jane Fonda, uh, it won some Academy Awards and that type of thing. Uh, like I said, I don't really remember what the movie is about. I just remember a vibe that was associated with that movie. Um, it, there was a lot of canoes and boats and quiet water, right? There was uh, sunsets on a golden pond that were quite beautiful. It sounds really nice, actually, when I think back on those kind of warm feelings about this uh, lake and I, what I think is in like northern New England or something. It really would be nice right about this week, right? Just a nice, warm, sunny uh, thing. And I think part of the reason that movies like that and ideas like that or images like that are so appealing to us is that they, there's something peaceful about them, isn't there? There's something communicated to us in a movie like that or in images like that. Maybe you're a fan of a painting that's a, of some picture of nature it, it communicates something to us about a simpler life, or at least a, a, a slower or more simple pace of life. Life lived at the speed of a canoe ride, right? Sounds like a pretty nice speed at which to live one's life. Not a life lived at the pace of like just running as fast as you can, frantically trying to stop everything around you from falling apart, right? Or running from one task to another task, just trying to kind of shoestring a life together is what we often feel like. Life often feels frantic, but on Golden Pond, right? You don't have to run frantically around. There's a bit of stillness in the midst of the chaos that is most of our modern American lives. Because most of our lives are uh, woefully lacking the kind of stillness or the quiet 
or the simplicity that many of us want from our lives, don't, aren't they? We just wrapped up Christmas, didn't we? Christmas is this season or this time of year where we try to pack more stuff, very often material things, in more of that stuff into our lives than we already have, and definitely more stuff than we can handle. Both practically and materially, this season has this way of uh, complicating our lives, right? Not simplifying them. But after Christmas, I find this deep desire in my own heart kind of welling to the surface. And that deep desire is to simplify. To simplify, right? To simplify the things I have in my house, to simplify the way I live my life, and to simplify, in some sense, my walk with Jesus, or the way in which I am a follower of Jesus in the world. Because that, too, can become complicated at times. It can become, become messy. Or, on my worst days, it can become just another thing I need to do in order to be the type of person I think I need to be to earn the value that I think I need to go out and earn. But actually, part of following Jesus, part of living the, the Christian life in the world is learning how to simplify our lives so that, for this specific purpose, so that we can make space in our lives for God. And we can have energy, not to just do all of the things we think we need to accomplish in a day, but so that we can have energy so that we can attend to our hearts or our inner selves, attend to our souls. You see, the truth is that our world, more than ever, is constructed in such a way as to rob us of our time, of our energy, both our physical energy and our emotional energy, as well as our financial resources, right? And if we are going to follow Jesus well, if we're going to take Jesus up on his offer of living a kind of abundant life, then we are going to need to learn the spiritual discipline of simplicity. The spiritual discipline of simplicity. Have you ever, any, ever heard of, spirit, of simplicity as a spiritual discipline before? Maybe not, but it is. It is. So for the next um, three or four weeks, I haven't totally made up my mind yet, uh, we're going to be looking at this idea of simplicity and, and, uh, and hopefully taking Jesus up on his invitation of what it means to live a, a more simple life, a life devoted to him and uh, with, in with intentional simplicity. Now, we're going to talk about a number of areas that Jesus invites us into. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus' invitation to live simply in our materialistic world, right? Invite everybody along for that one. Simplicity, uh, the week following, we're going to talk about simplicity and our media culture. Uh-oh, right? And all of the noise we let inside of our brains, and then I have a couple more ideas as well, but I know that's where I'm going for the next two weeks for sure. And it's my prayer, here's my prayer, that uh, over the next couple of weeks, we can identify some areas in our own lives where the Holy Spirit may be inviting us into a more steady, a less hurried, and possibly a more simplified way of following Jesus. Sound good? Sure, maybe. Okay, whatever. So let's turn in our teaching text this morning in the book of Mark and see what uh, the word has to say to us. This is a passage of scripture that I think many of us are probably quite familiar with, uh, whether you're familiar with it from Mark's gospel or Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel, it's in the synoptics. Uh, in, in this passage, we see a vision of an idea 
of what it means to follow Jesus in a simple way, I think. And any of us who have been part of a church for any length of time, uh, if you've been a part of different groups or different churches, uh, even maybe you've even just come across some different ideas in, in those environments of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. You see, every group of Christians has a vision for how to go about that work, right? Different denominations, different groups, they have distinct or different visions for what it means to walk out life as a follower of Jesus. And some of those visions can be quite complicated and difficult even at times, right? And in this passage of Scripture, I think Jesus kind of cuts through some of the difficulty that we construct around what it means to follow Jesus, and he focuses us in on the simplicity, the simplicity of what it means to follow him and to love God or to be a Christian in general. So, in this passage, Jesus is talking to a teacher of the law. Actually, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is in a kind of protracted conversation with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And this is just a section. And a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and asks him this question. He asks him, what is the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? Now, one thing that is helpful to understand here in order to get our heads around this passage is that uh, in the Hebrew religion of Jesus' day, things could get quite complicated. It was not, there was a high level, there was a high bar to kind of cross in order to really understand how to be a, a Jewish person in Jesus' day. Uh, some of you might be familiar with this, but there are 613 different laws in the Old Testament, or in, in the Torah specifically. And on top of those laws, there were stacks and stacks of rabbinic commentary on those laws. You see, in Jesus' day, there were a bunch of different rabbinic schools, uh, uh, ways of being Jewish that were formed around these different kind of rock star rabbis. And these scholars had their own interpretations of how they read these 613 laws. And so you had the 613 laws, and as a good Jewish person, you were supposed to observe those. But then on top of that, you had all of these different, you could call them churches, right? Different, maybe you could even call them denominations, that had different understandings or different interpretations of these 613 laws and how you were meant to live those out. For instance, the two, two of the primary schools uh, in Jesus' day, two of the primary rabbinic schools that had thoughts about how you interpret the scripture and how best to be a Jewish person was the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Now, both these guys are mentioned in scripture in different places, so we know that they're prominent. But these two schools particularly, and Jesus addresses this in, other, in another place, had a different opinion about what it meant to divorce someone. So one of them believed that a husband could divorce his wife for, uh, only for infidelity, and another one of them believed that a husband could divorce his wife if she did anything whatsoever that displeased him, including uh, simple household offenses, right? And this, these were two different rabbinic schools of thought. And in order to live life, you, had to, you had to slot yourself into one of these different rabbinic schools. You see... Uh, you see, there were all kinds of opinions and all kinds of, and all kinds of rules and all kinds of laws and all kinds of different ways of being Jewish or interpreting the Old Testament scriptures. And so there were all kinds of debates going on all of the time in Jesus' day. 
about how to be a good Jewish person. And the reason it was so hot in, this, in his day, the reason there were so many people arguing so often about how it was, how are we supposed to most faithfully live out these 613 laws, is that Israel at this time was an occupied land. The Romans had conquered the Jews functionally, and uh, actually the Romans conquered the Babylonians, and then by extension, they conquered the Jews. But, uh, but the... They, Israel was an occupied land at this time. They, they, were, they were not sovereign. They were not a sovereign nation. And many of the Jewish people in this day believed that the reason that they were not a sovereign nation, the reason they had been conquered, was because they had not followed these 613 laws the way that they should have, right? And so if, if they believed that, then you can understand why there were all these rabbis going, I have the way that we should follow this law, and we should all get on my team and follow the law this way, and then God will do a miraculous work and he'll kick out the Romans and we'll be able to be a sovereign nation again. There was some high stakes involved in following these laws. And they wanted to be delivered from oppression, and they believed that following these 613 laws in a specific way was the key to being delivered from this type of oppression. And this, I think, is part, this whole culture of, uh, of religion that's happening in Israel at this time is part of what Jesus is criticizing in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is criticizing people like the Pharisees who he is accusing of taking heavy loads or a lot of requirements and a lot of rules and putting it on people's shoulders and telling them you have to follow this law in this way, in this law, in this way, or else we're toast. We're never going to be a sovereign nation again. And if you remember, Jesus responds to this kind of culture by telling his disciples that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He doesn't have a heavy book of rules and regulations that he's going to put on, his on the shoulders of people. He has something else. But in our teaching text for today, Jesus gets himself in the middle of one of these discussions that's going on, one of these arguments between teachers of the law. And they ask him, out of all of the 600, this individual asks him, out of all of the 613 laws, which one is the most important, Jesus? Which one do we really need to follow so that God will like us again and will get us uh, free from these Roman oppressors, is the question, basically. In essence, you can boil the question down to this. What does God, I think it's on the screen, what does God care most about? That's a good question to have the answer to, right? What does God care most about? And Jesus answers this question by saying, love God and love people, right? That's how Jesus answers the question. Actually, he first quotes the Shema, which the Shema is the great uh, prayer of the Hebrew people. They were commanded to, to recite it to themselves multiple times a day. But then he takes the Shema and he adds to it. He adds, love the Lord, your, you know, he, he recites, love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And he adds to it and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answers the question of this rabbi or this teacher of the law, very simply, doesn't he? The thing God cares most about is that you love him and that you love your neighbor. 
in Matthew's telling of this story, Jesus, Jesus actually says, and all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. All of the 613 laws, all of the rituals and regulations, all of the sacrifices, all of the prayers, all of the added interpretations that are on top of all of that, all of that hangs on love God and love your neighbor. Love God, love people. And Jesus introdu introduces us here what, to what I believe is a kind of simplified spirituality, doesn't he? It's pretty simple. It's easy to get your head and your heart around. Now, I just want to mention briefly that what he does not say is that we need to throw out all 613 laws, right? He doesn't say ditch them. He does not say that these laws are stupid and we should discard them. That's not what he says. Actually, in other places, he says that he's come to fulfill all of those laws. But he says that the, all thir uh, 613 of these laws is pointing us to a purpose. And the purpose to which these laws are pointing and guiding and hopefully leading the people of Israel is to loving God and loving people. Now, in our day, in our day, we construct religious rules and systems as well, don't we? We, it's natural. We can't get away from it. Every one of us does this. You see, we believe very often that in order to please God, there are all kinds of tasks that we need to accomplish, all kinds of rules that we need to follow in order to make things the way we think they should be. But Jesus calls us first and foremost to focus on the simplicity of loving God and loving neighbor. And everything else kind of flows from that spot. Everything flows to it and everything flows out of it. And anything we do spiritually that does not lead us back to that place is not correct. Or at least it's not being done in the correct way. You see, Richard Foster in our book of the month, The Freedom of Simplicity, says, loving God is about inward simplicity. This is the language he uses. That it's about cultivating a kind of inward simplicity, about making the love for God and communion with God the primary thing in our lives. And then the way we express that out into the world, what he calls outward simplicity, is about how we love our neighbor. He also adds a few more things on outward simplicity, other ways that we live our life simply. But basically what he says here is that meaning uh, inward simplicity is the cultivation of a life with God, while outward simplicity is the way we live our lives outwardly. But specifically, I think outward simplicity uh, uh, this outward simplicity manifests itself most clearly in the way we love other people. And the question we have is like, am I cultivating inward simplicity in my heart? By that we mean that the priorities of my life with God are about being with him and loving him. And am I cultivating outward simplicity with my life? Am, is my life decluttered enough and are, are all the practices and prayers and things that I'm doing leading me to love people and not to not love people? This is what it means to cultivate a simple spirituality, a spirituality of simplicity. Last week we talked about the gospel in as simple a terms as I could kind of muster, particularly for this reason as well. Now, what I want to po point out to all of us this morning is that I think our, what our teaching text is getting at here is that all of the ways that we construct our religious or spiritual lives are meant to kind of funnel us back to these two simple truths. 
And it sounds funny, but we can live, we can live a kind of spirituality that takes us away from the core intentions of God, can't we? We see, we see the Hebrew people doing this in the passage of Scripture that we heard read. You know, God gave the people of Israel these laws as a means that they might reflect out into the world his character and purpose, and yet they turned them, like we so often do, into a way of achieving something that uh, actually turned out to be not good for them. You know, we've, and you've seen people probably in your life whose religious makeup or their religious orientation doesn't actually make them more loving to God and to neighbor. It actually makes them more angry internally and dismissive of other people externally, right? We've all seen this. We've all seen the way that we can live out our spirit, a spirituality that actually causes us to distance ourselves from our neighbors rather than going towards them in love. And what Jesus is doing in this passage uh, is introducing us to a way of interpreting the way we follow him that points us in the right direction. You see, Jesus has some high criticism in the New Testament for Pharisees who believed that by doing uh, their religious kind of perfunctory behavior, they could get God to do what they wanted him to do. Jesus confronts them and tells them that internally you're whitewashed tombs, right? And then uh, externally he says you're, you're, you're using religious customs and ritual to abuse people. And you're calling it love, but it's not. So this morning, what I want to do is simply walk through a couple questions with us. And I think part of what these questions are meant to bring to the surface is to allow us to ask the question of how am I using my walk with Jesus? How am I using my faith in Jesus? And am I allowing it to point me to those two simple realities of loving God and loving others? Or am I using it in a way that maybe it was never intended to be used? All right? So this is, uh, here are some questions that I think are helpful for us. And I'm just going to walk through these questions. They'll be on the screen. And, uh, and we will uh, talk through them a little bit, too. So first, I want to I ask these questions. These are questions that can help us cultivate, I think, an inward simplicity or, or love for God is a way of putting it, all right? So the first question is, is my spiritual walk centered in achievement or is it centered in grace? Do I have any achievers in the room, right? You love making lists. You love creating, uh, you love creating like, goals. You have goals on your mirror in the morning, and you have goals in your notebook. Those aren't inherently bad things. I think they're very, very helpful. But if the primary center of my walk with Jesus is achieving something, then it, it misses the mark, right? Then we begin to use our walk with Jesus as a means of either being becoming a great Christian or, or achieving some spiritual goal rather than simply being with God. You see, there, there, is a, there is an aspect of achievement in all of us, right? We all want to be good at what we do, and that's not always bad. But when achievement becomes the central lens through which we see our walk with Jesus, it becomes about striving, and it doesn't become about grace, which is about the thing that it is. You see, the truth of the gospel is that none of us earn it through achievement. We receive it through grace 
And so when our central lens or our walk through the, sorry, the lens through which we see the faith is achievement, very often we turn it into something that is not primarily about loving and being with God. Does that make sense? So that's the first one. The second question this morning, do I see prayer and other spiritual disciplines as an invitation to be with God or as tasks that I need to accomplish in order to be a spiritual person? Do I see prayer and spiritual disciplines as an invitation to be with God? Now, this is a fine line, right? Spiritual discipline is an important thing. Being a disciplined person in prayer and in the reading of scripture and all other all forms of other spiritual disciplines are important. It is important that we do these things even when we don't feel like doing them because it's about forming us into a certain type of person, a certain type of person that loves God. But if the primary lens through which we see spiritual disciplines like prayer is to, uh, to accomplish something rather than being with God, then we're kind of missing the mark. And we can all drift over into this, can't we? We can see spiritual disciplines as a means of accomplishing some spiritual good rather than as an invitation to be with God. One of the, one of the pastors that I uh, kind of tangentially follow uh, has kind of a structure to his morning prayer, and he publicized it, so I read it one time. And so he has all the things that, you know, you have in, when you write down how you're going to pray in the morning. He has he prayers for his family and prayers for his congregation and prayers for this and prayers for that. He has all of these passages or all these parts of his kind of morning structure of prayer that has, he's asking God for things. He's actually petitioning the Lord to partner with him in certain ways. But then at the end, he just has this section that he calls sitting with Jesus. Almost as the point, like God calls us to partner with him. He calls us to ask for things. He encourages us to do that. But if the point of what we're doing is simply asking for things and not being near him in prayer, then we're kind of missing the point entirely. You see, the primary purpose of our spiritual disciplines, the primary purpose of reading the Bible is not to gain knowledge about the Bible. The primary purpose of reading the Bible is to be with Jesus. The primary purpose of prayer is to be with Jesus. The primary purpose of all of these spiritual disciplines is to be with Jesus. And if they take us off course to anything other than that, then we kind of miss the mark. All right? Question number three. Do I carry out spiritual activities uh, such as prayer, Bible reading, and giving because I believe that by doing these things, God will, will then do something for me? All right? You see, very often we, uh, there is a form of religion that kind of slides over into the coercive. That if, that if I can just do these certain things the right way, if I can just manipulate thing, this, this situation in a certain way, then eventually God's going to do what I want him to do. Right? I w here's what I will say. Spiritual practices or activities like prayer, like Bible reading, like giving, are not about changing God. They're about changing you, okay, primarily. God does want to partner with us in prayer, right? He does want to do things with us, but they are not transforming his character. They are not twisting his arm, all right? And very often we have a view just naturally as human beings. We have this kind of religious compulsion in our lives to do these things in order to get a certain outcome. 
And that is just not the type of spirituality that Jesus teaches in the New Testament. It is just not what he tells us. He tells us to ask for what we want, right? And that our God is a good God and he will give it to us as it aligns with his will. But he does not say, he says this primarily because he wants, he wants us to talk to him, all right? But he, but he does not say that by doing these things, often enough, you will coerce God to do what you want him to do. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. And very often, a spirituality that is about a, coerce, a coercive spirituality that is about getting God to do what we want him to do will lead us not to see God as a loving father that we want to be with, but rather as a kind of heavenly slot machine. And as many times as we can pull, is it the, the one-armed bandit, right? I don't know. Nobody wants to give away that they've done a slot machine in church, so I'm just going to talk about it. As many times as I can pull the kind of one-armed, the one-armed bandit, I'll get to the place where eventually it, I'll get a jackpot, right? And this isn't how it works. This isn't a healthy spirituality, and it's most certainly not a spiritual one. So, uh, uh, those are the questions I think are really helpful when we're asking, like, is, am I cultivating an inward spirituality? that is focused on loving God. You see, all of the tools of the Christian life, prayer and worship and, and, this, and time in the scriptures and fellowship with, with the family of God are all meant to develop in us what Thomas Akempis called a familiar friendship with Jesus. If what we're doing in this place, if what you do as a follower of Jesus in your regular life isn't cultivating a familiar friendship with Jesus, it's possible that the energies of your religious life are running in the wrong direction and need to be focused back on the simplicity of what Jesus says in this passage of Scripture. So those are the questions for that idea of how do we cultivate an inward simplicity. But how do we cultivate an outward simplicity? How do we cultivate what Jesus talks about here as love for neighbor? How do we cultivate that? And I think there's some helpful questions that we can ask ourselves in order to get to that place. So here's one. Does serving others bring me joy, or is it something that I think I need to do in order to be a good person? How many of you like being seen as a good person? Raise your hand, right? Man, I love it when people see me as a good person. I have, I have and had a reading disability. I'm dyslexic, and I was not good at school. But you know what I was really good at? Getting people to like me. And so I might not get good grades, but I sure would get that teacher to think I was a good boy, right? And so there was, there's all, because of that, there's always this deep internal yearning for people to think that I'm a good person. And sometimes I will do things for people, even begrudgingly, because I want them to think that I'm good, right? And you know what that breeds? Not love, that breeds resentment, all right? If you're looking for other people to affirm you as good and that's why you're doing things for them, you will become a resentful person and not a loving one. Believe me, I have some firsthand knowledge of this. And so part of what I need to cultivate, part of what I need to cultivate in my own heart is doing things for people and, and doing things for people even when I don't want them to do, but not to do them so that they will see me as a good person, right? But rather to do them because they are the right thing to do and because I'm trying to cultivate an orientation of love towards them and not seeing them as a means of my being good. So that's the first question. 
Second question this morning. Do I primarily attend church so that I can get my spiritual needs met or in, or, or in order to love, serve, and worship with my community? This is, a, this is a really important question. We live in a world that is consumer-based, right? We live in a world where everything is seen through the lens of how it, how it serves me. And very often in our kind of consumer-based materialistic world, we view church the same way. It is about, it's a place where I can get my spiritual needs met rather than a place where I can serve, worship with, and love people who are in my community. You see, I've said this to people individually, and it's about time I say it to the whole church. The greatest gift you can give the church is being present, present with people, present in this place, present uh, with them in, in their times of need. Your presence, your very presence, is part of the way you love people, okay? When you are with other people, specifically in church, it's not primarily about you. I, it's not primarily about me. It is about other people. And part of the beauty of gathering together as the church is about being together for the sake of other people. Can you imagine coming to church primarily or gathering together with the people of God primarily so that you can serve and love and bless others? This is what the church is. The, the stories of the, of the early church we have in the book of Acts are, are of a people who gather daily from house to house, the scriptures tell us, as a means of breaking bread with one another, serving and loving one another. Do you come to church? And this one hits right at home because culture is just constantly pounding into our heads that everything we do should be about us. But do I primarily attend church or do I primarily gather with other believers to get my spiritual needs met? Or do I do so in order to serve them and love them and worship God with my community? It's a really good question. Okay? Question number three. Do my religious convictions keep me away from people that Jesus was near? This is a good question. Do my religious convictions keep me away from people that Jesus was near? It is quite possible that if your religious convictions are keeping people at arm's length who Jesus went out of his way to be near, then you have turned your religion into something that it was never intended to be. Jesus wants us to be brought near people, not keeping, not keep them at arm's length. Olivia, if you could come up, that'd be great. You see, Jesus is always about this business of shrinking the distance between peoples, never keeping them at arm's length. And sometimes we can live out our faith in such a way as that it actually is used as a mechanism to keep people away rather than to be brought near. To, to ourselves and to Jesus. And we need to ask that question pretty ruthlessly. Here's another one. Are you feeling towards people who don't believe like you? Uh, sorry. Uh, are your feelings towards people who don't believe like you primarily judgmental or primarily gracious? So if somebody doesn't think like me, if they don't, even if they're another follower of Jesus and they don't follow Jesus like I do, are my primary feelings about them judgmental or are they gracious? This is a good question. You see, do I believe that my way of life, my way 
of being a Christian makes me superior to other people. And that is not to say that you believe they're not right, because we should all live from a place of conviction, right? But nothing we do should make, should endue us, endue us, that's not a word, uh, should give us feelings of superiority to others. We are not called to be superior to anyone. We are called to serve everyone, right? And these feelings of superiority that we, that the human heart and mind love, right? We love feeling superior. We love feeling like the more moral person in a place. We love feeling like the more religious person in the place. We love feeling like God loves us more than he loves other people. And that is simply not the faith that Jesus gave us. It is okay, it is okay to live a way of life, it's actually, you're supposed to, to live a way of life that looks different, right? Difference is good, superiority is bad, right? And anytime we are filling ourselves up, we're kind of, we're, we're like a balloon getting, uh, getting air or getting oxygen from our superiority, we can be sure that we are not doing what Jesus commands us to do, which is to love God first and foremost, and then to love people. To love God, and then to love people. And this year, I am committed fully to kind of stripping away all of the extra stuff that holds me back from loving God and loving people. Because there's always things, aren't there? There's always things trying to kind of like impinge on that reality. And we have to be resolute and we have to be focused on simplifying our faith so that we can do those two things well, loving God and loving people. Would you commit to doing that with me this year? If so, would you stand? Would you stand with me? And as we go this morning, just in an attitude of prayer, Maybe God used some of those questions that I read out to maybe stir your heart or spark something in you, and you're like, oh, I do that. This is, not a, this is not about judgment. It's not about condemnation. It is simply about you asking yourself the questions that will properly orient you this year towards the thing that God would have you do and be. Maybe what God is inviting all of us into this year is just a simple and beautiful faith where we learn the art the art because it is an art of loving God fully from our hearts and loving people fully as God loves them and if we can if we can do those two things well we know we know that this is what God cares most about these two simple things and we can have opinions about all of the other stuff, and we can do a lot of the other stuff, because it's not bad. But if we make the main thing here the main thing, then we can know that we're on the right track. And we're living it out of the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel that Jesus gave us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we come before you so thankful that you gave us this simple message of loving God and loving others. And Jesus, right now, we repent of the ways in which we have used religion or we've used rules or we've used laws or we've used our own sense of superiority or 
our own desire to earn your favor as a means of either not loving you or not loving our neighbor. We confess, God, that we, there are all kinds of ways that we do those things. And we pray, God, that you would bring us back to the simplicity of that, uh, that two-handed reality of loving God and loving people. And we pray that this week and this year and even today, God, that you would impress upon our hearts the ways in which we can love you more fully and we can love others in your name. Jesus, would you, by your Holy Spirit, empower us to love you? Would, the, would a flame of love be ignited in our heart for, for you, Jesus? And would that carry us out into our world as, ambassador, as ambassadors and messengers of your love? Would we be people who embody this message in our lives? And would we find in that place a fullness of joy and an abundance of life? And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thanks for being with us at church today. It's been it's good to see everybody. Would you go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Amen.